Welcome to Hevray Connect. I'm Zach Garber, your host and a current Hevray member. In this podcast, you will get the opportunity to learn about the incredible Cabinet Young Leadership Program. We will explore the stories of fellow Cabinet members, alumni of the program, and educational series about the Jewish Federations. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with your friends, family, and local Jewish Federation. Enjoy. Many of the people that I built a strong connection with, I come from a completely different side of the spectrum in terms of uh, upbringing as they did. And yet, you know, there's something that binds us together and it's a common interest of doing more, uh, you know, serving more than just yourself and your family. So for me, my why, my, my real why, my legacy is going to go well beyond my daughter because my goal is to give away a significant portion, a substantial portion of my net worth while I'm alive. Today, I'm very excited to have another episode of Hevray Connect. I have the honor and privilege of interviewing a good friend of mine and fellow Hevray, Jared Elmar. Jared is a fifth year in cabinet, and he's the managing partner and founder of the Geneva Group. Since 1999, they've been acquiring and managing residential and commercial real estate. They've acquired a portfolio of over 1.3 million square feet of retail, multifamily, and industrial properties. Jared and I met recently on the real estate retreat, and uh, I'm very excited to share his story and a little bit about his background. So Jared, thank you so much for coming on. I think a great starting point would just be to learn a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I appreciate you having me on, Zach. Uh, this is a great opportunity, and hopefully uh, as we continue on with uh, with a couple more retreats, this, this gives everybody an opportunity to get to know each other a little bit more before we even all meet. Um, so I, my name is Jared Elmar. I, I am born and raised in uh, Miami, Florida. I've always felt like the black sheep and with cabinet, and there's a million reasons why I'm part of it, but uh, I always felt like I was the outlier with the group. I, I did not, I was not raised with a Jewish education. I was not connected to my faith until later in life when I had a daughter. Um, I, uh, I really, I was always told as a kid, you're Jewish, be proud you're Jewish, but that's as far as it went. I was not bar mitzvahed, uh, and I really did not have any structure whatsoever in my house. Um, my mother and father separated when I was three. Uh, my father died of drugs when I was seven. Uh, my mother has battled addiction um, since I was about four or five years old. She's been in and out of rehab. I didn't live with either of them most of my, uh, with my mother most of my upbringing. Uh, my grandfather actually raised me. Um, my grandfather is on my mom's side and, uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't have any money. Uh, I was in a 300 square foot efficiency apartment and not the best neighborhoods, not the best schools. Uh, but the one thing he was able to do is I always had love. Uh, and, and that, that is the reason why I, I, I stayed on a course that led me to where I am today. Um, because it would have without, without some type of, uh, some type of father figure, I don't know which way I, 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 I would not have gone down the road that I, I, I ended up going down. My grandfather was homeschooling me, um, in the ways of business. He didn't have any money, but he was always seven years old. I was reading Forbes magazines. I was in front of the, the black and white television watching, uh, Louis Rukeyser of wall street week. I was watching McLaughlin group, all these eighties business shows on PBS. 
And, um, you know, by the time I got into middle school, I started to figure out how to be an entrepreneur. Um, and I started selling costume jewelry that my mother had, uh, uh, you know, extra costume jewelry and all tangled up in a shoebox. And I spent a few days untangling all these, you know, cheap pieces of jewelry, necklaces, bracelets. And I was selling them to the parents. I was selling them to kids in the school for two, three dollars. And uh, that was like my first real understanding of business, um, not only just to make a profit, but uh, but also customer service, because that jewelry ended up putting turning everybody's neck green and, and arms you know, wrist green. So I, I didn't have too many uh, too many happy uh, customers coming back. So that that really taught me uh, that was a that was an eye opener in business. Um, so I was really on my own a lot as a kid. And, uh, uh, you know, I read, I read a lot because my grandfather got me into reading early and, you know, that's, it was, it was, it was a tough, it was a tough neighborhoods. It was a tough upbringing. Um, but again, you know, with, I, I had a lot of love and, you know, later on I found, you know, I found the right person, right. Yeah, life partner. Right. I found my wife, uh, and, um, and then I was connected to a, my faith, which was really a missing piece for me. So let's let's jump a little bit further. So you know, come past middle school, you end up going to high school. How, how did you end up getting into real estate? You know, on this episode, one of the things that I wanted to share is kind of how you're self-made. And I think that does resonate with more people than you probably realize in in cabinet and how you've built this tremendous company brand uh kind of all all on your own um i think that would be helpful sure so i really do i I was not a good student and i don't know if if i was in if i was in a good school district would i have been a good student so i i I just was never really destined for college and and because my mother had issues and, and was trying to run from her problems um, I was bounced around to a lot of different schools. You know, she would move and then she'd take, she'd take me from my grandfather's, you know, to, to another town. Uh, and I wound up going to a different high school. So I wound up going to like four different high schools. And, you know, there was just no structure. Anytime I, that I was with her, there was just no structure. My grandfather, I had some structure. And after, after uh, about 17 years old, I had enough. My mother was battling her demons. And I was, we were living in an unfinished basement in my uncle's house in Atlanta. So I wound up moving up to Atlanta for a couple of years. And uh, it was an unfinished basement. There was a partition separating where my mom was sleeping and where I was sleeping. And I was just done. And I was a senior in high school. And uh, I just had the idea to just move out. So at 17, I moved out of my house. I never looked back, but I needed to get a job. I, I got an apartment with three roommates, which was an experience unto itself, uh, picking the wrong roommates. Um, and, uh, and I just, I didn't finish high school. Um, I was a couple classes away from getting my, getting my, uh, uh, diploma and I just, I had to work. So I left and I, I did a lot of sales jobs and I realized I liked, to, I liked people. I liked to communicate. I had a, you know, I had a pretty good, uh, I guess, spiel. Um, and I was trying to find my place and I know this was probably 1997, uh, there was an infomercial about um, how to buy houses with no money down. And it was with, by Carlton Sheets. And they gave a layaway program uh, or, or payment program to get that course because I couldn't afford it. So I got that course and I was just inspired by what I heard to be able to buy a house. I mean, it was just, it was unfathomable. I, we never even, I never even lived in a house. Um, you know, it was always apartments and, you know, in a quadplex or whatever. 
So to think that I could buy a house with no money down, I was going to make this happen. So I, a lot of it is a lot of cold calling over, over time and finding, you know, a, uh, somebody that might be a little older, somebody that's owned a house for a long period of time that had an eviction. So I would go to the courts, find out who is getting evicted, find the address they're getting evicted from, find the landlord, uh, the owner of that house, give them a call and see if they are tired of dealing with the turnover of tenants. And um, I finally found a guy to take a chance on me. And with, I think, $1,500 that I saved, uh, I put a down payment on the house. He held the note for the balance of it. And um, I fixed the house up. I got rid of that tenant. I rented it out to a better tenant um, because I fixed it up. I got about $300 more in rent. And um, uh, and then I got another guy to do the same thing, a very similar situation. So now I have two houses uh, shortly after high school. This is probably in 2000 now. Um, so I worked it for a year and a half before I actually I got somebody to take a chance. And um, then all of a sudden, finance, you know, lending started loosening up. And there was a bank called Wachovia that would allow me to tap equity out of the houses, the equity that I created out of those houses, and be able to have, have cash in hand to go buy another house. And that's what we did. Um, I say we, I had buddies of mine that were helping me fix up the houses. And I started, I took another course, I found another course, um, and it was talking about where to find the value, where the houses are, where the best deals were. And it turned out they were on the courthouse steps. So every month, different counties would have auctions and they would, they would auction off the, uh, the, the homes that were in foreclosure on the courthouse steps, literally on those steps outside. So I found that was where the deals were. I ran out, um, I got financing on the two houses that I had. I think it wound up to be 15 grand. I took the $15,000, now I have some cash. Uh, I went in, I found a house, a third house on the courthouse steps for $6,500. And um, I bought that house and then I bought another one and I partnered up with another guy who, who had another $10,000 or so. So we got another two houses, fixed those up. I rented out the $6,500 house for I think 550 or 600 a month. Um, and I uh, was able to two months later, go to the bank, tap equity out of there. They wound up giving me $15,000 out of that $6,500 house after two months of owning it. And I just kept doing that. So I wound up building up to about 55 houses throughout the early 2000s. And I wind up getting an unsolicited offer for a bulk of them, about 45 of the houses around 2007. So I wasn't looking to sell them. I had some good cash flow now coming in from the rents on all those houses. And, um, and I got a great offer. And little did I know the world was gonna fall apart the following year. So the best part about it was, it, again, sometimes luck, you know, luck, luck tends to find you when you're not looking for it. And that's, that really happened for me. Um, I, was, I was focused, I was a hustler, I didn't stop. You know, I was having fun with my friends, but for all intents and purposes, I was, business was always on my mind. The real estate was always on my mind. How can I scale up? How can I build a business? And um, when the world fell apart, the, I, I got another course and the course was more based on commercial real estate. And I met this guy in 2006. He was opening up for, uh, it was in the well, it was a wealth annex. There was 6,000 people in attendance and he was opening up for um, Colin Powell, George Foreman. And he gets on stage and he starts talking about, you know, buy commercial real estate with no money down, buy a $5 million building for no money down. It's like, well, it worked the first time. So now let me let me go ahead and scale up because this is what I want to do. I want to be in real estate, but I want to build a. I don't want to be a real estate investor. Investor, I want to be a real estate business. And 
I figured that was the way I'd, I'd really be able to scale a lot faster is with commercial real estate and maybe the same rules apply. So this was in 2006. I was killing it with the residential and I, I was too busy earning a good living to make any real money. So I, what happened was in 2008, the world falls apart. And now you're a little bit nervous. It's like I got a little cash from the sale of the houses. I still have some houses left over. So I have some cash flow, but I'm nervous. I don't want to, maybe I got lucky. I don't want to deploy the cash, not knowing if it was just dumb luck that, you know, I got a great offer. So I will look this guy up in 2000 and um, now we're in 2009. I looked this guy up and it turns out he's got a boot camp teaching commercial real estate in Atlanta. Um, and it was a three-day boot camp. So I go in there and that was it. I was hooked. I'm like, this is it. This is what I'm going to build my, my portfolio. I didn't know what product type, whether it was going to be retail, office, industrial, multifamily. I just knew that I was going to build a portfolio of commercial real estate and I wasn't going back to residential. Um, so I wound up, my first, my first project was a 156 unit apartment complex. I had a couple guys that knew what I did on the residential side that took a chance on me. And it was the first time I ever raised money. And I, I raised 1.4 million from nine guys. Uh, I bought the 156 unit apartment complex for, uh, for $9,700 a door. So, and I knew the market and this was an okay street, but even then I closed, we want to close it on that deal. And I had a murder within 30 days. I had a strong arm robbery. I had two fires and I had a truck go through a building, one of the buildings, because the guy didn't put it in park. It, you know, it's in Atlanta. So you have some hills and the guy didn't put it in park and manual transmission ran, ran right through somebody's living room, almost killed the person. So I had every issue that happened, but sometimes you don't have to do things right, but you always have to do the right things. And, and doing the right thing for me was not knowing, um, not knowing the direction that that first commercial project was going to go. Um, so I didn't put any debt on it. I actually raised the cash, all equity. I had a debt component with those specific partners, but I didn't go get uh, bank debt. And if I would have gotten bank debt and had that master to serve, I don't know if I would have made it through that, that complex because we really were struggling with cash flow. I don't know if I would have been able to cover the debt service. So, you know, I, I did the right thing. I just, I may not necessarily have done things right. Um, so I learned a lot from that project, but we wound up, I wound up selling that deal for, I think, 20,000 a door 16 months later. So we doubled our money, um, you know, and, and that's kind of how the, that's how the, the business kind of became the business. Uh, it was our, it was the first commercial deal. It worked out well. And, um, and the, the investor base started mushrooming, you know, it was all word of mouth. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of people in cabinet that are building their careers, their businesses, um, looking for their success story. Um, you mentioned how you started with a couple homes. You did the same thing on the commercial side. What is it, you know, now that you have 1.3 million square feet of commercial real estate, what was that difference in terms of being able to scale and, and, and building a, a larger business for anyone who's looking to take that step from doing kind of one-off projects to having a full team and a company where they're, they're managing people and they're able to have a system mm -hmm. in place? This, and, I, and I'm sure I'm not just speaking about real estate, but this is a lonely, this is a lonely business. Um, a lot of times you feel like you're, uh, you know, even though you have your attorney network, your accountants, your, you know, your advisors, it's a lonely business. Um, I, I realized I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not. So you got to recognize who you are, what you're good at and acknowledge what 
you need help with. Because a lot of times the ego gets in the way, especially for the guys. You know, we don't want to ask for help. And for me, I, you know, look, as, as somebody who didn't go to college and, you know, was, uh, was, you know, was kind of a street guy. I mean, I just, I, I knew how to talk to people. I, I had a lot of common sense, but I knew, I knew where I, my shortfalls were. So my, where I was able to scale the business was after we sold that apartment complex. All right. So now I got a little bit of confidence, right? It's a compounding effect. I sold the houses. Maybe I got lucky. Then all of a sudden, boom, I got lucky again with 156 units. So it's a compounding effect and you really build your confidence. But I wanted to, I wanted to see how fast I can accelerate this business. And I found, um, I did, a, I had a, a, an admin to help me out, you know, which is just the general day-to-day -day minutia. But when I found the number two guy, when I found the number two, um, I, I called the, the eternal lieutenant, the guy that doesn't need to be in the limelight. The guy that is strong where you're weak, uh, the guy who really just needs recognition and needs an equitable, you know, uh, equitable compensation. It doesn't even have to be a 50-50 partnership. It just they need to feel appreciated based on what they're bringing to the table. So I found that guy and I found him through a networking event in Vegas. It was a real estate event. Um, uh, it was kind of a mastermind group that I, I, I joined. And I met him and he was five miles down the street from my house. He just sold an apartment complex in Jacksonville. And uh, we just got, we just hit it off. And he was, you could tell my, I, I tend to run at 120 miles an hour. I'm always looking up, but I run quick. He's runs at about 50 miles an hour. And he's kind of the, he's the, I don't want to call him glass half empty. He's a realist. I'm a big time optimist. I feel like I can make anything work. He's the realist. He's the guy that, uh, blows holes in any of my ideas. So he's not an order taker. And, and that's, that's, I think that's the most important thing. If you could find that number two that you trust, that is not a yes man, that you can work out a deal without having to give away the shop, um, that is going to take you so much further. And, and so many people love to hang on to equity. And we hear this all the time with seasoned guys that have been in the business for two, three generations. And they're like, oh, we don't give away equity. I think it's nonsense. And, and I think it's very short-sighted. Uh, and I, and if you find the right person, um, that person will, will, will die for the company and, and, and your, uh, your belief in, in the growth of the company. Um, that, that really changed everything for me. And I was able to build around my number two. So now we, I've kind of simplified it over the years. And I talk to this with my team all the time and they, they, they know it in and out. I'm the visionary and I, I, I believe most people, in our group and, and uh, are probably that visionary. They're the, they're the big picture thinkers. They're the ones who want to become the next Amazon or, or the next, uh, at least the next, the next level in their industry. Um, the net, the number two is the guy who makes it happen. So you think it all up, they make it happen. Everybody underneath the number two makes it repeatable. And that's the framework that my company works off of. And we can't do it without each other. And they know it and everybody knows the, the, the feel, uh, you know, the, everybody feels the euphoria when things go right because they understand where they understand their lane. They have to be the be very best or they're not going to be with us. Um, you know, the clock watchers, the order takers, they just don't last in our company. And, and that comes down to getting what you tolerate. Um, uh, you know, they, everybody knows there is no such thing as a B player in my office. Everybody's got to step up. And for that, I give away a lot. I mean, I, I, I pay, I pay beyond accordingly, but they have to give me everything they got.
I think I think that's very telling that, you know, hiring appropriately, finding that number two. I like the idea of the visionary, the execution person, and then being able to create a process that's repeatable and then finding the right people who, you know, want to have equity in those projects. And I think that's I think that is good advice for anyone who's looking to scale and grow a business. On this podcast, we're focused on uh, cabinet and Jewish leaders that choose to give back with their time. You mentioned that your wife connected you back to religion. Uh, obviously, you're very busy running 120 miles per hour, you know, building, running, growing the business that you have, but you still choose to give of your time, your dollars, your efforts back to the Jewish community. Can you share a little bit about what connected you to the community and why you choose to give so much back to the community in terms of time and dollars? Yeah, and it's uh, it's become so obvious the older I get, but uh, for the longest time, I didn't really know what, the, what my why was. Um, my grandfather, you know, he, he raised me on $1,500 a month. Um, this is the 80s and early 90s. And, um, you know, it was an army pension and social security. And the guy always gave to wounded veterans and he always gave to Jewish organizations. And it wasn't a lot. I mean, he made $1,500 a month. But the one thing I knew, I, I saw every single month, he made, he made sure I knew what was going in the mail. He gave to Jewish causes and veterans each and every month consistently. And he said, you take care of the Jews, you take care of the vets. And that, that is the extent of my Jewish connection or, or my education when I was a kid. Um, but it, but it stuck with me. And, you know, now, uh, you know, even just beyond Jewish causes, I believe that we are here for more than just raising a good family, being a good husband, raising several kids, turning girls into women and, and boys into men. It, we got to be here for more than just serving our family. So for me, my why, my, my real why, my legacy is going to go well beyond my daughter because my goal is to give away a significant portion, a substantial portion of my net worth while I'm alive. And for me to do that, I have come up with, you know, kind of a number that I, I know that I can live the way I want to live. And that's always the hard part because, you know, we all like the conveniences of life. Um, but I know I want to give 80% of what I accumulate in my life away. And I'm working toward that. And I give, I give consistently. I give to uh, to federation. That's that's the lion's share of what I give. But I also have other causes that I believe in, and, and that I give. And, I, and my daughter knows that I do it. And I have my office. There's a culture in my office. We have a charity committee. And regardless if you're charitably inclined or not, you are involved in the charity committee. And that's we we they interview different local uh, nonprofits to see if we gave you a grant what would that money go towards? So they do an application and we do an interview. And at the end of uh, semi-annually, the office decides, they vote. Now I get a vote also, but my vote is never is not any you know more important than, than the offices. They vote on where it goes. So last year we did Women in Distress, we did uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, uh, alumni. They chose it, they chose that's where the money goes. And the uh, empowerment and the connection that they have to being a part of those dollars getting there, it, it builds our culture. They know that it's not just all about let's let's uh, let's take a property, let's fix it up, let's make it worth more, let's make uh, our wealthy investors wealthier, and let's raise rents. You know that is not where our company is uh, is about. I feel like I'm a for-profit company for the nonprofits. 
And I make sure that the office knows that we are about giving. Um, we're about obviously providing a service and being the very best so our businesses within our properties um, can flourish. But the dollars that, that come in, there's a certain allocation that's always going to go out to, uh, to nonprofits and they're very much involved. So everybody that's around, around me, everybody that's in my life knows that I'm always going to be the mouthpiece for, uh, for philanthropy. Um, and I'm, and I'm loud about it. So why, why is it, you know, you mentioned, I, I think it's, it's great what you're doing with your company, how you guys are giving back, how you're community oriented and how you need to be for more than yourself. But why is the Federation become the lion's share of your giving? Why is it that you choose to give your time to cabinet? In my twenties, when things were really good before, you know, when it, when it didn't seem like it can go bad, um, somebody told me somebody that was involved in the, my, my county's, uh, Federation, uh, Broward Federation. Um, he said, you know what? The Broward chapter, you know, Broward Federation needs you. Miami, they're, they're fine. They don't need you. Palm Beach, they have two different chapters. They don't need you. Broward really needs you. You're from Broward. I mean, that was what I really why I was raised as Broward. Um, you know, your heart's here. They need you. And I didn't give initially to my federation altruistically. I really didn't. It was very self-serving. Um, I was building my business. I was thinking at some point, you know, I, I, maybe it's a good idea to start raising capital. So I'm in my early, tw- I'm in my mid twenties. I'm 26 years old. And this guy says, you know what, there's a big event. You should sponsor it. It's $25,000. And, uh, and you should just do it because it's the right thing to do. I'm like, ah, you know what? I, I, my grandfather always said, take care of the Jews this way. I could do it. But you know, if I have business come in from it organically, so be it. Right. So that was my attitude. And I did that. And then all of a sudden I started to get hit up from different people in that, in my, in, uh, in Broward within the organization. And they started taking me on these mini missions to see where the money went. And all of a sudden I'm like, wow, okay, this is, this is much more interesting now that I'm actually seeing that where the dollars go. Um, and then recognizing how much of a feeder fund Federation truly is. And then I started going on the bigger missions. I've been to Cuba, I've been to uh, Israel, uh, Russia, and then I really, really got super, uh, you know, motivated. Mm-hmm. So I, I tell people that are coming up through the Horizons program through Federation, I've said in the past, you could be selfish. Be selfish when you give. You know, do it for do it for more than just true, you know, altruism. Because at the end of the day, the dollars are going where they need to go. And at some point, you will mature and you'll grow up to recognize what. What, what the most important things in life are. And, you know, money is just a vehicle to, 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 to help other people, whether that's your family um, or, or outside your family. But it's okay to be selfish when you're giving because it's going to the right place and you just got to find the right organization. The Federation has had my heart since 2006 and uh, I just continue to get more and more involved. I got involved uh, through committees, co- being co-chairs. And then all of a sudden I was told uh, by uh, alumni uh, you need to be part of cabinet. You're going to find a lot of like-minded individuals. And, um, you know, I said, yeah, but you know, everybody's been bar mitzvah and everybody's had, uh, you know, they've, they're, they've been, they were raised with tradition and I was not. And I said, no, I'm telling you, just give it a shot. Go, you know, uh, I'm, you, you, they'll nominate you. You'll, you'll go to a retreat. You'll just see how you like it. And it's just amazing how I never imagined somebody that comes from such opposite backgrounds as, as me. Um, and how how tight I've become with so many of uh, so many of my have right. Um, one of my best friends, uh, was, which is Sam, 
Sam Fish, uh, we met through cabinet. And it was funny because it was even before the retreat. It was like a pre-retreat, you know, happy hour. And we just hit it off. And he's in real estate. I'm in real estate. And, uh, and we've been on trips together. And, you know, you really build bonds uh, with this organ, with, with cabinet, with these people. And it's just so funny because we come from, we couldn't come from more. Many of the people that I built a strong connection with, I come from a completely different side of the spectrum in terms of uh, upbringing as they did. And yet, you know, there's something that binds us together and it's a common interest of doing more, uh, you know, serving more than just yourself and your family. Is there a specific mission or story or uh, either local or international cause that the Federation supported that, that you remember that you want to share with people so they understand, you know, this is why I give? You mentioned that by seeing the work, it, it really motivated and changed the dynamic of why you were involved. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of turned into such a cliche, especially in our group. Uh, but Israel, Israel really did uh, change my perspective on everything. Um, we were we were probably, it was probably about four years ago, we were, I don't know, a mile, not even from the Gaza. And we went to a school that that Federation helps fund. And we met, we all got together and it was basically a bunker. And we came out of the bunker we, we got up in the yard area and there's these massive concrete culverts, which are these big concrete cylinders. Um, half of the cylinder is underground and half of the cylinder kind of creates a shelter. So um, we're walking around, the kids are playing ball and all of a sudden the sirens go off. You know, there's a rocket that, that just you know went up and the kids automatically drop the ball, drop everything they're doing. They run into these cylinders and they just stay there. Until all of a sudden they they get uh, word that they get uh, they hear you know it's okay to come back out and then they go proceed to do whatever they you know were doing before and they do this seven eight nine times a day and that was to see dollars going to uh, to those type of families um, that that was like I get chills just thinking about it just remembering these kids um, and then there were so many different um, programs that I got to see in Israel, probably seven or eight different ones, the, the Holocaust, uh, you know, meeting Holocaust survivors and, and talking to them and hearing their stories and knowing that our dollars are going to help them. It was, it was just very eye-opening. And, um, and that wasn't that long ago. So I was involved, I was involved, I was involved, but that really changed things. And, and that was a big reason why I think I joined cabinet. That was about, yeah, I guess it was five years ago because shortly after I joined cabinet. So you mentioned that you now have a family you have a daughter. What are some of the Jewish rituals, traditions, you know, Shabbat holidays, things that you do today that you want to pass on to them that are meaningful to you? I mean, this is the part that, uh, you know, again, I know there's always, always controversy within sets of, uh, of Judaism. Um, I, the most important thing I want to instill in my daughter is there's something, you know, you need to recognize that there's a greater force than yourself. and you need to be doing more for humanity than you do for yourself uh, because life is short. And it's, to me, it's, it's about helping. It's about progress, progress in yourself and progress in humanity and doing your part. Um, so it's not even so much of Jewish traditions because I just wasn't raised with that. It wasn't in my tradition, wasn't in my deep rooted in my DNA, like so many of our ever. Um, but recognizing that, to, to ensure that she is connected to a faith, that she recognizes that there's a God. Um, those are the most important things to me. 
she knows that dad is Jewish. Now, the one thing to, to clarify, my wife, my wife's Italian and um, the, she was baptized. She was confirmed. And here it is where I wasn't in bar mitzvah. My, it's, a, it's somewhat of a house divided. We, we celebrate the traditions of Hanukkah, Rosh Hashanah, and Yom Kippur. I, I go to service, um, you know, the high holidays. I, I, will, I will punch the clock, so to speak. Um, but uh, my daughter gets the best of both worlds. And she goes to a school. It's actually an Episcopalian school. But I'm in Boca Raton, which that Episcopalian school is 65% Jewish. Um, and what's great about that school is, is they call it virtue. And they learn about different religions, different ideologies. And Olivia knows more about Jewish tradition than I do. Um, she teaches me. So she is connected to a faith. And, and that's, that's what's most important to me. And she recognizes who I am and to be proud that she is Jewish as well. Um, but, you know, quite frankly, I am not as uh, stern about the traditions as I know a lot of, uh, a lot of people are. Before we wrap up the interview, you know, are there any things you wish to leave with people? And remember, this this podcast is going to go to our fellow Hevre. It'll go to people in your community. It's an opportunity to engage other people in in cabinet, which is you know the Jewish leadership program uh, nationally all across North America. All I can say, all I was just want to stress, based on what we talked about, is and, and maybe not so much so much in cabinet, but people outside of cabinet, um, most, a lot, most people just aren't charitably inclined. And, you know, they think that if they raise a good, you know, good kids, that's, they've done their job. Um, that's where, you, that's where I would hope that my Havre would do the same thing I do. And that's be vocal. And a lot of times that means getting out of your comfort zone. And I'm not talking about preaching, but I'm, at, I'm talking about the feeling that it is the, 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 that euphoria that you get when you are helping. I mean, the, the, it was pain. It's painful to cut the check sometimes, especially in a bad market. And I, I've been a major donor for Federation since '06. And when the world fell apart, it was very hard to maintain. And I felt like, you know, I have a very, uh, I have a friend of mine, uh, a business partner, and uh, he wrote a book. And I, I always tell him I'm going to take this line. He always talks about exercising the philanthropy muscle. And you do it young. You do it, you know, when you when you're just coming up. You give what you can. Um, and you keep giving more and you stress yourself, you get out of your comfort zone financially and you build that muscle and the muscle gets stronger and stronger and you tell people about it. Maybe you get them to start exercising their philanthropy muscle. And, and at some point, like I said, like I said earlier, it is a compounding effect in the amount of difference that you can make in a lifetime, having that mentality and that philosophy and how many people you can bring with you, um, when you're, when you're outspoken and you're talking about what you're doing. Uh, I would just encourage everybody to, you know, to, to talk to those that may not necessarily be charitably inclined and explain what what it meant, what, what it did for you to be charitably inclined, uh, what it meant for you to cut that check and to to help that that cause. I do that all. I do it on a daily basis. And I've actually built a company uh, within the within the core of the company. I've built that into my company. So I do it to, with friends, family. I do it with my employees. Everybody knows what I'm about, and I know so many people that have started giving, and they've they've given me the credit for it. And I don't need the credit; I need them to just cut a check. So uh, I just encourage everybody to do the same thing. Well, Jared, we really appreciate your time. Uh, it's incredible learning a little bit about your story. I hope people were inspired, motivated uh, about 
where where you came from, how you've built a business, how you scaled that business, you, they've taken a couple lessons, and then why it is so important to give back. Um, and I think one of the amazing things about Cabinet is just the the level of leadership and the other people that can inspire you to continue to scale, not just in your business, but also in your charitable ways as well as your thinking. So really appreciate your time and hope everyone enjoyed. Zach, I appreciate you having me on. I, I really am I'm thrilled that you did this, that you put this together. Um, and hopefully everybody will jump on board and, and be part of this, this, this podcast. Great. Thank you. Through the zooms and the frozen time, lead of step.